This is Glenn Crooks on frame. On Friday, November the 8th, two days before the MLS Cup final, the Major League Soccer Players Association set up a conference call to provide updates and define the priorities in ongoing negotiations with MLS and the owners. The current collective bargaining agreement expires at the end of January. On that call, Executive Director Bob Foos and three members of the bargaining committee, Jeff Laurentowitz of Atlanta United, Alejandro Bedoya, Philadelphia Union, and Diego Rubio from the Colorado Rapids. Laurentowitz, like Eric Miller of New York City FC, one of seven executive board members representing the players. Another one of the player reps for NYCFC is goalkeeper Brad Stuver, and he is also a member of the MLSPA Bargaining Committee, one of 130 players, or 20% of the league, that has an active role in CBA negotiations. With Brad, I took some things that we learned from Friday's conference call. Uh, the two sides, we learn, have been negotiating for over a year. Bob Foos also revealed that the players have been preparing for a strike for two and a half years. So there's this list of priorities and why they mean so much to the players. So here now, my conversation with Brad Stuver, a member of the bargaining committee for the Major League Soccer Players Association. Brad, first of all, how are you? Uh, season has concluded. Everything going all right? Hey, Glenn. Yep, everything is good. Uh Enjoying a little downtime. Still wish we were playing for the cup, but making the most of it. I would imagine you you could really taste it this year in particular, finishing first in the East. You know, and things have happened in uh, in New York City and with your head coach, Dolme Tarot. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll get to that a little bit uh, later on. Uh, the impetus uh, for getting in touch with you is this uh, MLS uh, PA and uh, – the bargaining sessions and negotiations, knowing that the uh, current collective bargaining agreement uh, will conclude or end on January 31st of 2020, which is just as preseason is starting. And then uh, with New York City FC, there's CONCACAF Champions League also to consider here. But just f from this call, some things we learned is that uh, that the uh, – the players group has been negotiating with the league for over a year and have been preparing for a strike for over two and a half years. So those two things struck me right off the bat. Is it uh, unusual that leading into this that uh, there has been so much communication with the league or is that, is that sort of standard? Um, so the last, the last go around that we had with the CBA, it was not standard for us to start negotiating so early. But I think this year as a player pool, we wanted to get the information out earlier and we wanted more guys to buy in and understand what we were trying to do. And we thought as a group that it would be better to go to the negotiating table early so that we would have more time to talk with the league and more time to get the information out to the expansive player pool. And I mean, I think it's been good. I think it's helped uh, with transparency. And I think the league has been uh, pretty open with all the information they've been given us. And I think we're in a good spot right now. Well, the one thing we also learned is uh, the league opened up their books. Uh, it sounds like in its entirety, and certainly it's something they're going to be truthful about. There's not much to hide. So is that is that something that's really helped you uh, and your players group maybe almost prioritize a little bit here? 
Uh, it's been good that the league has been so forthright with their numbers. Uh, it's been good for the Players Association and the bargaining committee to see behind the scenes what's going on. Um, I think it helps us negotiate a better deal and a fair deal so that both sides come out with something that will continue to make this, um, this league grow without tanking the numbers. Obviously, we want to see this league grow. The players want to see things get better, but we also want to do it. I think you heard in Don Garber's state of the league yesterday, he said we have to do it in a way that makes sense for both parties. So them opening the books allows us to see what's going on behind the scenes, and it allows us to push our envelope a little bit to get the player rights where it should be without having to sacrifice anything. So, Brad, can you, and this might be just too simply put, but is it for people trying to consider and, and follow this and, and understand what the players are going through and, and what the league and the owners are going through and trying to negotiate and figure this out, is there essentially a, a pool of money, like a dollar amount, and then what you're trying to do as a group decide how to delineate those funds? I mean... It's part of it, for sure. Um, there's a lot of different issues that are on the table. There's a lot of different issues that we are um, trying to negotiate. But the the main thing is just putting fewer restrictions on the money available for players. Um, right now, you see all of the three-letter acronyms like TAM, GAM, all that type of stuff. And those can only be used on a certain amount of players. So for us, it's one of our negotiating points that we try to eliminate those and just make it one big pool of money. So that way the money can be used however, like however the teams want to use it, they can use it. It can go to all players regardless of their roster number or their like roster spot. So, I mean, that's definitely one of the things that um, we're looking to do. Well, let's, let's focus on TAM for a moment. Here's the exact quote from Bob Foose, your executive director. We have a very, very negative view of TAM. And frankly, I think uh, the way it was introduced and the restrictions it placed uh, turned what should have been a real win for the league into uh, a real loss. And um, we hear now, um, even now, league officials talking about uh, the positive change and all the growth we saw because of TAM, and that's just not true. We, we've seen a ton of positive change because they pumped millions of more dollars into player compensation, and that's a very good thing. The impact of TAM, a made-up set of restrictions uh, done from a, a central office to try and dictate to all of our franchises how they build their rosters uh, in my estimation, didn't really add anything uh, to this league, and it, it certainly uh, frustrated uh, and angered uh, both the PA and our players. So from our perspective, in the simplest terms, TAM is silly. It, it's not necessary to try and tell our front offices how to uh, sign players. They're perfectly capable of doing that themselves, and frankly, if they're not, then they should suffer the consequences, and that's the kind of accountability that we want to see happen. So 
from our perspective, things like TAM need to go away, and we need to stop being a league where uh, there is an over-centralization, where there's an over-tinkering, and where there's this notion that uh, you design a, a, a competitive football league uh, in a boardroom or um, in an accounting system. It needs to be done by the people who know the game and know their franchises. We talk about free agency, we, we're going to talk about travel, but it certainly sounds like TAM, uh, there's more of an emotional uh, output to TAM than anything else. Yeah, and I think he's just hitting on the point that that group of money was instituted by the league outside of negotiations with the MLSPA. It's one of those things that the league unilaterally said, yeah, we're going to add this much amount of TAM into your salary budget, but they also put restrictions on it saying it can only be used on these players that qualify. So yes, they're adding more money into the player pool, but they're also restricting who was allowed to use that money. So um, from a player standpoint, it's very difficult to say that that has helped the league when only a certain percentages of players can use that. So there is, I think it was two seasons ago, there were a couple of players that were trying to move teams and they were trying to negotiate a deal, but they did not qualify for a TAM deal. So they weren't able to get what they thought their market value was. So say their market value, they thought it was $700,000 they didn't qualify for TAM. So the club wouldn't have been able to buy that $700,000 deal down underneath the max salary budget charge. So then those teams were only able to offer that player 500,000, which is underneath the max budget charge. So it's one of those things where all players want to be able to negotiate what they think their market value is and TAM is just a restricted portion of that. So uh, in that description of that player who was denied access to move, does that reflect on a team saying uh, it's a budgetary issue that in some way uh, in their ability to try to maneuver the budget and the roster that it makes it more difficult? Or what if you're on the right. uh, if, if you're actually on the owner's side, you know, what's your objection to uh, just allowing the free flow of money. So I think I would have to agree with Jeff Lorenowitz with some of his quotes during the call yesterday. Um, I think he said it best when he said, if I'm the owner, I would want to go out and purchase the best player available with the money that I can. Why would I not want to be able to purchase the player that I want? at the number that I want instead of having to deal with the TAM and the GAM. So imagine if the owner wanted a player, the club or the coach wanted a player, the player wanted to go to a team and his market value is X, but you can't sign X because of the roster rules. So then the problem becomes, will the owner be more willing to spend that money if there's no restrictions or like is the TAM actually helping? So I think for me, the owners should see it as if they want to go out and buy the players that they want for the number that they want. Me personally, I would want the money just to be one pool 
and then I can spend it how I want. Yeah, flexibility. Instead of having all these restrictions right, on it. Flexibility exactly. to build your club. And I think, and when Bob says, um, he said it pretty harshly, but he's right. If the GNs and the clubs don't make the best of that money, that's on them. It shouldn't be on the roster restrictions. You see clubs all over the world, they make, they spend money on players. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But the teams that do the best are the teams that are able to use the money correctly. Brad Stuver, New York City FC goalkeeper. He's a, a MLS PA, Players Association, bargaining committee member, one of the uh, three uh, player reps on uh, New York City, along with Sean Johnson, Luis Barraza. It's a, the, the goalkeeper union surpasses the training field and game day in, <laughs> into the Players Association representation. Also, Eric Miller on New York City FC, part of the executive board, the seven-team executive board. So uh, the other thing that's been discussed, Brad, uh, in your list of uh, priorities, and see how maybe this relates to what we've been talking about with Tam, though, is free agency, where players have a real choice. Can you describe that a little bit? Uh yeah, I mean, free agency is also one of the things that we're negotiating on. And basically, it's just we want to see players have the right to choose where they want to go. It's more than just the money aspect of it. Um, it's more about having a say where you play, who you play with, what coach you play for, what city you want to play in. Um, it's just now because of so many roster mechanisms it's hard to get out of a club that may not be investing in you so free agency would be able to give players the right to move on and get what they deserve in a market that they think that they would enjoy so the way bob foos classified this is that the, the league of the owners had a long-standing position that they never allow free agency and you got it in uh, well, maybe an adequate way in the last CBA, but uh, there are severe st- restrictions, 28 years old and eight years of service, and restrictions on salary increases also that can be achieved through this. So as he classified it again, the system has a long way to go. Uh, how much of a, a stumbling block could free agency be as uh, – you guys sit and negotiate. If um, uh, you know, the, again, we're eventually going to really talk about the threat of a strike. But is this a is this a major uh, piece of it? I mean, listen. Last time we went through the CBA, free agency was a philosophical issue that the league, all the owners, basically said, no, there's no way that the MLS system can survive with free agency. And in that CBA, we were able to get some form of free agency in the deal. So we got over that philosophical hump and now we're just talking about numbers. Um, Now we're just trying to move the ball forward. We're trying to make free agency more accessible to a bigger percentage of the player pool. And then the next aspect is allowing players to negotiate better money when they hit the free agency mark. So, I mean, it's just one of those things where in all CBA negotiations, you have to, you have to negotiate and you have to move the ball forward. And each time you're hoping to get a better and better deal 
obviously it's not going to happen overnight to have unrestricted free agency, but this is one of those times where the player pool is very solidified on this issue. And I think we can make some serious strides to increase the level on the field. You know, you, you mentioned uh, that and that it was attained in 2015 and on the call, the conference call uh, a couple of days back, uh, Jeff Laurentowitz, who's the longest standing member on the executive committee, he, uh, he took exception. Uh, one reporter on the conference call talked about how the players maybe got some cold feet in the last of bargaining uh, and that uh, they gave in to demands. And I think free agency was always, you know, you know, well, you have free agency, but my gosh, it's so restricted. The uh, But he took exception to that. I think there's a misperception of what happened in 2015, especially around when the vote occurred and, and, and how that all went down. Because the players were given a, a proposal, a final proposal from, not a final proposal, but a proposal from the league and we actually voted 17 to three to walk away from that proposal and essentially begin a work stoppage. And I don't know what time that was. Maybe, you know, probably after midnight um, on one of the last nights in DC. And that, that vote was taken because the, the last proposal that we received from the league was not good enough. And the free agency, um, especially the free agency thresholds that, that were presented to us were, were just not good enough. And along with a lot of other things. And we walked away from that deal. And the vote that we cast and the unity that we showed in the room that night spurred the league to then come back to the table the following day. I believe their lawyer kind of got them all out of bed that night. And then we met early the following morning after being up until probably two in the morning to then negotiate and speak about something totally different than the proposal we got the night before. So the perception of, of what happened in 2015 as being, you know, the players getting cold feet or, or, or anything like that is, is utterly false. And I think that if we showed anything, it was unity that night because the deal that we struck on was completely different from the one that we were, were playing under currently. How do you remember all that? And, um, and in terms of Jeff talking about taking obsession, the cold feet or, you know, maybe, uh, you know, losing some of their power, the players. Yeah, I think Jeff hits it on the nose there. Um, I wouldn't say we lost any power or got cold feet. I remember getting a call from Ethan Finley the night that that happened. And he basically called and said, hey, we're going on strike. He said that the players and the Players Association walked away from the table, um, that they thought that the deal presented by the league didn't match what we anticipated. It wasn't one of our expected results. And they said they voted and they said that they were going to walk away and to tell the rest of the team. So, I mean, after that call, we got on the group messages and just said, hey, guys, um, as of right now, we're on strike. Um, don't show up to training tomorrow. And, I mean, in this scenario, I was talking to Sean Johnson this year about it, and he was in Chicago. And they were actually in, I want to say it was like the night before the first game that it happened they were playing on a friday i think and they were about to hop on a plane and they didn't know whether to hop on a plane or not the next day so they were in a bind where it was like okay we're going on strike so we don't show up to the airport tomorrow so i think it's one of those things where cold feet is a is not the right term 
the vote was made, we were basically on strike at that moment. But then the decision came down that some things had changed in the negotiations and we didn't end up having to miss anything during that strike. So the time that we were on strike, there was no sanctioned trainings or anything because it was so late at night. So, I mean, so in essence, you got cold feet. You were on, right. You, you were on strike in the uh, overnight hours, uh, got back to the bargaining table early the next morning. And the one thing Foose pointed out was that when you guys went to bed, it was an eight year contract that was, uh, put on the table by uh, the league and the owners and it was changed to a five-year deal when they came back in the morning. Do you remember that as being a a big portion of it? So I remember them telling, uh, because at that time I was just kind of someone in the locker room that was kind of dispersing the information. I was still, it was only my second year in the league. So I was still just learning about the issues. Um, But I remember the bargaining committee guys explaining to us like the differences that happened in that, seven hours but i remember going to bed thinking that i wasn't going to training but uh i woke up the next morning and uh had a text message was like okay yeah show up to training like we're going to continue negotiating and we're going to continue to get this done we're like oh okay cool so it's just one of those things where obviously the eight to five and some other details that were changed uh brought us back to the table and it was in good faith that we continued training with Brad Stuver, MLSPA Bargaining Committee member, and I, we would be remiss if we didn't uh, discuss travel because that charter and the, all the different aspects of this uh, large country, this compact schedule, trying to get around the games, being uh, recovered to uh, uh, an aspect and, and in respect to, to being able to perform at the highest level. I thought it was uh, pretty stark when Alejandro Bedoya uh, Philadelphia Union captain uh, was on that conference call and he described uh, the end of the season situation for the Philadelphia Union. Yes, charter travel for me is is a huge player benefit that I see. You know, our country is so large and, and Canada as well. Um, we had a week, we had a three-game stretch in one week. So we played New York Red Bulls at home. We had to travel midweek all the way out to San Jose um, and then flew back the next day um to philly only to fly the next day again to columbus i ended up getting injured uh the game in columbus um which was my first muscle injury in my career and i do i uh, believe that if we had flown charter you know directly after the game in san jose um not having to sit in economy seat for that long not having to take a bus actually from san jose to san francisco that took over two hours um that that could i i it could have been preventative uh it could have prevented my injury it's been uh there's been research about it you know there's been articles written about how it can improve recovery time and we talk about a league uh trying to be trying to f- become one of the better ones and increase in quality and this would help that so you know i i do believe uh charter travel is important and I remember reading an article um, not too long ago, a few weeks ago, where Don Garber actually uh, said he was surprised if teams weren't taking their four discretionary charter flights throughout the season. 
here in Philadelphia Union, we did not take one charter flight during the season. He made it pretty clear that uh, this is unacceptable. So what's your stance individually and personally as uh, you've uh, been on teams that have had these compact schedules and maybe have suffered from it and how important it is to the union? Yeah, I think uh, I think when we talk about charter flights, a lot of people see us as complaining that we have to take commercial airlines and all this stuff, and they think that we want to be treated special. But that's not the case. The thing about charter travel isn't about skipping the lines or like having the in-flight meals and all that stuff. Um, it's all about just like we don't want to get delayed. We don't want to have layovers. I mean, especially in New York, getting from our training facility to any of the airports in New York in the traffic is about an hour, hour and a half on a bus. So you're on the bus for an hour and a half. Then you're at the airport an hour early. Then you're on the plane for however long. Then you're on another bus getting to the airport. Um, I mean, all of that just eats into the recovery time and the ability for you to train. So, and when that happens, play suffers on the field as a result of all of that. So for us, it's about how can we elevate the product on the field? And we think that charter flight will allow us to recover faster. It will allow us to train better. And in that, it will help us elevate the game on game day. So it's one of those things that we see charter flights as adding to the like best interest of the league. Tell me, what is your reaction when you hear that the Philadelphia Union did not use a single charter during the regular season? Each team is permitted four under the current uh, MLS rules. And when uh, Bob Foos, uh, after a, a study, and I'm sure you were aware of this, but I really want to know your reaction, is that less than half of the available charters throughout the league, if you take all the teams, all 24 teams, less than half of the charters were used. When teams anywhere from three to four times during the year are going to have that uh, compact three matches in seven days, three matches in eight days. What do you think? Listen, I mean, at right now, the decision to use charters is not mandatory. The only time it's mandatory is in the postseason. So if you're an owner and you're trying to save money, obviously you're not going to spend the money on charter flights. But that's not what's in the best interest of the players. So what we're trying to negotiate is to have a mandatory number instead of just, yes, you can have four. You have a maximum of four that you can use, but none of that is mandatory. It's just discretionary. So um, I see it as more clubs are trying to save money because I understand charters are expensive, but in the grand scheme of things, What's more expensive, losing Bedoya for four games and losing those four games or paying for the charter and having it healthy for those four games? I'm not saying those two are directly related, but it's certainly one of the catalysts. So going into the negotiation, um, I think travel has been where the focus has been drawn in the media and it's definitely been the most outspoken issue. And it is a very important issue. 
but it's not the end all be all. Right. But, but I'll tell you what, if I'm a coach, if I'm the coaching staff <laughs> and the health of my players, the ability to recover and uh, yeah, I talk to players that, you know, haven't even played on these trips and they're exhausted. You know, just <laughs> just the uh, the actual travel and how long it takes to get from point to point. But uh, but were you startled when you heard yeah. that less than half of the charters were used or did you just kind of is that just known throughout the league? The players just know this. I mean, for me, just talking amongst players across the league, I kind of had an idea of who's using charters and who's not. Um, it is a little startling to me that more teams don't use them, especially when you have to travel across the, across the continent, which can be six hours. Um, I mean, when you talk to the foreign players that come to this league, one of the biggest things for them is the amount of travel that we have to do. Most of these guys are coming from countries where the longest travel they have to do is two and a half hours. They don't understand that, yeah, sometimes we have to go to a market three days early to accommodate the time change. We have to fly in the air for six and a half hours. And all of this is for one game. So for them, it's one of those things where they have to get used to that. They have to understand that. And a way for us to attract more players to this league and grow the game here and continue to grow the game here is charter flights and that will aid people in like okay yeah we have to fly six hours but at least you'll be able to recover better you won't have to like be cramped in a 30 row 30th row seat on a commercial plane you know uh you're coach or your former head coach uh, Dome Tehran we know that uh, and he's coming from Europe you talk about players from uh, Europe coming over and getting used to it or figuring it out uh, same with the coaching staff and uh, it, it certainly was one thing Dome uh, focused on during his uh, what year and a half tenure uh, with the club is that uh, MLS if they don't solve the travel issues they're, they're never going to be the the kind of league that will attract those players or uh or a respected league on the uh, on the international level as well. So I know you said it's kind of not the end all, but and you have to sort out how this is all going to work. But uh, it is a massive issue, yes. It is, and I mean, speaking with Dome for the past year and a half, he would like we would talk all the time about travel issues and all this stuff, and he was pretty baffled that players just found it normal. So when he came here the players on the team were just like, yeah, this is just, this is the way it is. This is what we have to deal with. And this is how we have to put um, a product on the field when we get there to make it better. So for him, it was, yeah, the, um, the travel needs to get better to allow this league to continue to grow. But he was also very proud of how the mentality of the players was. So he said some players couldn't come here and do this type of travel because they their mentality wouldn't be able to handle the travel and then to play. All so right. he said the mentality of the player group is something special here because we're able to take that on the head and we're able to push forward and put a product on the field. And I mean, I think especially this year, our squad showed our resilience because I think we had our one of the best uh, away records this year so 
winning an Eastern Conference title in MLS. Uh, Brad, on, on Friday, uh, the club made it official, New York City FC, that uh, the, the club and Dolme had mutually uh, uh, decided to part ways. Uh, I'm wondering first uh, how much uh, you know, MLS played a role in that and, and some of the, you know, it, it's not just the travel issues, it's, it's the scheduling uh, during the international break. Uh, some of the things you're fighting for in your uh, negotiations, that is, uh, you know, restrictions on, on acquiring players and, and things like that. I mean, how much of a role do you think this, uh, the, the way the current MLS is in Dome's decision? Uh, I mean, I'm sure it was, a, it was a culture shock for Dome to come to the MLS uh, after spending so much time in Europe. But, I mean, he took it in stride. He did his very best to accommodate the league and he had to travel just like the rest of us. He had to deal with the salary cap, the budget, all of that stuff. And at the end of the day, he put a team on the field that won the Eastern conference. Um, For him, he decided that it was time for him to move on to take his next step in his career. And I think all of us here at NYCSC can just say thank you for the past year and a half and wish him and his staff all the best in whatever comes next for them. Brad, I talked to you uh, earlier in the year when Greg Berhalter took over the U.S. men's national team, and he's trying to instill a certain playing system and how much time that took at Columbus when you were a member of the Columbus crew while he was there. You talked about a year to a year and a half. And uh, sure enough, uh, then Columbus is in the MLS Cup final against Portland in 2015. Uh, I'm wondering how disappointed you and, and the players might be knowing that Dome, in about the same amount of time, the players and Dome seem to, to figure it out together, to, to play in a way that, that uh, he envisioned. And uh, you win the East, you fall short uh, in the MLS Cup playoffs but it, it must be a bit disappointing because it seems like you, you finally got it together. Yeah, I think uh, things really started clicking for us in the summer. Uh, we had a slow start at the beginning of the year when we were still trying to figure everything out. But, I mean, it's not like we were losing every game. Everything was competitive. We tied a whole bunch of games. Then we started really hitting our stride in the summer. We had a couple long unbeaten streaks. Um, But, I mean, at the end of the day, we always talk about how the MLS regular season is one thing and then playoffs is a completely different thing. Um, At the end of the day, it's just a a one-game final and anything can happen in soccer. Uh, This year, it stung a little bit more just because of the way that we went out. Uh, But uh, it is what it is. We have to put it behind us and move on and be ready to put the same type of product on the field next year and continue to strive for MLS cup and the supporter shield. And now in the meantime, uh, you're part of a group of uh, 130 players. That's 20% of the league, which is uh, really impressive that are actively uh, involved uh, in this uh, uh, idea of trying to negotiate and reach a compromise and an agreement with uh, the league and the owners on the uh, collective bargaining uh, agreement. What is your, are you at this very moment, I mean, there's been a lot going on. You know, you you said you've negotiated over a year 
uh, where you've talked about things with the owners and the league. Uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Uh, you know, where are you? Uh, this was asked of Alejandro Bedoya, too, so I figure I'll ask you. Uh, knowing that uh, the one thing that really uh, resonates in my conversations with Eric Miller and then being on that conference call the other day is that the players are very, very prepared to strike and are unified in that if they don't have a, a proper agreement. Are you optimistic or pessimistic at this point? Uh, I'm optimistic. Uh, I mean, I'm always optimistic about any situation, but I'm optimistic that the players, like you said, are in a really good spot right now. You talk about 20% of the player pool that are part of this bargaining committee, but the other 80% are all being brought up to speed about the issues that we're talking about. In our group message, like for New York, we're texting out updates whenever we have them, letting people know, like, hey, this is the deal. This is what um, this is what we're negotiating. This is where the league stands. This is where we stand. What do you guys think about this? Um, so, I mean, it's one of those things where 100% of the player pool is bought in to the message that we are trying to push. Um, they're 100% bought in to getting the best deal available to help grow the game in this country. Um, whether that means we go on strike or not is to be determined, but I'm optimistic that this player pool will be able to get the best deal available during this CBA negotiation. Hey, final thing, New York City supporters, CONCACAF Champions League for the first time New York City's qualified. Games start in the middle of February the CBA, the current CBA, expires January 31st, where the owners, if there's not an agreement, do have the option to lock out the players. The players have the option to strike. What exactly happens during all that? Is it, if you don't have an agreement, can you still play CONCACAF Champions League matches? Uh, I mean, it would be up to the team's individual players. But as a player pool, I think to show solidarity, everything would cease if we went on strike, regardless of the competition. And for CONCACAF Champions League, for MLS, for League Cup, for all that stuff, for us to be able to get the best deal possible, we would all have to be unified in going on strike and going on strike throughout all competitions. Now, if there's not an agreement by then and you haven't gone on strike and haven't been locked out, would you still be in training camp and could play those games as you understand it? As long so, I mean, as long so in 2015, we continued all the way up until the weekend of the first game because we were negotiating in good faith. Um, it's one of those things where it all depends on where negotiations are at come that time of year. Um, but I think the Players Association and the league both understand the, the landscape that we're in right now. And we're all trying to push for a deal to be done sooner rather than later. Whether or not we can uh, come to an agreement is a completely different thing. But uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see where we're at 
come January 31st, whether we continue to play in good faith or we just stop everything and wait for the best deal at hand. That's New York City FC goalkeeper, player rep, and MLSPA bargaining committee member, Brad Stuver, and I'll plan to stay in close contact with Brad and also NYCFC's Eric Miller, who is a member of the MLSPA Executive Committee, as these negotiations continue. Thanks for joining me. A new episode every week. This is Glenn Crooks on frame for Pro Soccer USA.